Turn with me tonight to Psalm 66. Psalm 66. Let's read through this psalm together. It's for the choir director, a song, a psalm. Shout joyfully to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name, Selah. Come and see the works of God who is awesome in his deeds toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There, let us rejoice in him. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves, Selah. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad, who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. For you have tried us, O God, you have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net, you laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You've made men ride over our heads, we went through fire and through water, yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay my vows, which my lips uttered, and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts with the smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats. Selah. Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell of what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. Let's just seek the Lord as we look into his word. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It is true. It is righteous. It is a path of life. Gives us the knowledge of yourself. Give us understanding, we pray. Help us to have our eyes open that we might behold wonderful things out of your law. We pray for Kids for Truth tonight as well. Bless John as he teaches. Bless the children as they learn. We pray that you'd work in their hearts and help them to trust and obey as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we began to look at this psalm. We saw an invitation to global and glorious praise to God in verses 1 through 4. And the heading or the title for the message of the psalm as a whole is glorious praise to the God of all the earth. I think you could see that theme in the very first verse, but also throughout the psalm as there's invitation to sing to the Lord, to shout joyfully to the Lord, to praise the Lord because of who God is and because of what he has done. There's a confident expectation in verse 4 that all the earth will worship the Lord, that they will sing praises to him, that they will sing praises to his name. And that confident expectation 
in verse 4 is followed with an invitation to come and look at God's work of redemption, to come and look at God's work of providence. Come and see, verse 5 says, and later we'll see in verse 16, come and hear. So come and behold and consider, not just look at, but consider God's work in creation, his work in redemption. His work in redemption, particularly with regard to his people, verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land, they passed through the river on foot, and that's the, you might say, some of the bookends of God's work for his people as he brought them through the Red Sea, but he also brought them into the promised land through the Jordan. We looked at both of those passages. And then his work of providence, verse 6, he rules by his might forever, his eyes keep watch on the nations, and that work of God that is ongoing as the nations of the world go on as they do through their life as a nation. God has his eyes upon them. God will ultimately judge them. The rebellious ought not to exalt themselves because of who God is and what God will do. Verse 8 begins a new section. In my Bible, I have paragraphs marked just by a space. And, of course, we have the word selah at the end of verse 7, a musical notation most likely with a pause. The pause for thought, the pause for a breath. Verse 5 was, come and see the works of God. As you behold the works of God, God is worthy of praise. And so in verse 8, there's a call for a universal benediction, a universal blessing. Bless our God. And just as it was in verse 1, shout joyfully to God all the earth, now it's bless our God, O peoples, plural, and sound his praise abroad. This is... I believe, addressed to the peoples of the world, not merely the tribes, although the tribes were peoples, they were individual distinct tribes. But it's the nations of the earth that I believe are in view. This psalm is a global psalm. It deals with the peoples of the earth, not just the Jews, but all the Gentiles as well. And so the call is to bless God and to sound his praise abroad. And then there are descriptions as to why he's worthy of that blessing. Not only because he's God, not only because he works by his providence, and not only because he brought redemption to his own people, but there's also this. As the nations come to believe in God, as people come to trust in God and experience his goodness, there are many reasons that he is worthy of praise, and I think we see a number of them here. I think uh, as you look at verses 8 through 12 in particular, there's blessing to God, both for what he does generally, but also you can see what he has done in these verses for the nation of Israel. There's allusions here to what he has done for the nation. What has he done for the nation that he also does for those who trust him, he preserves them. Look at verse 9. It says, who keeps us in life, who puts our soul in life, is literally the wording. 
He preserves us. One translation has, who has kept our soul among the living. Or one, another translation has, he preserves our lives. And this is a plural. So it's not just one person, but a group of people. God had preserved them. And you could certainly say this is true of the nation as he preserved them in Egypt. If you ever see the wisdom of God as he took them into Egypt and protected them there from war, from being just assimilated into whatever culture, he not only brought them into Egypt, but he, by virtue of their occupation as shepherds, separated them from the rest of the Egyptians. And then, of course, they were distinct as they became slave labor for the Egyptians. But God preserved them. He protected them through all of that time and actually prospered and blessed them as a nation. But God does that for individuals too, doesn't he? David could say, and we could see many testimonies throughout his life, Psalm 30, verse 3, O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol, You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. And so a personal deliverance, a personal preservation. I know I'm looking at some people tonight who you would say, well, God preserved me too. I was under the threat of a very serious condition or circumstance. And yet God continued to sustain me, preserve me, heal me. God is worthy of praise for that. He's worthy of blessing. It says, bless our God, O peoples, who keeps us in life. He preserves us. He gives us breath in our lungs. He gives food on our table to preserve us, water to drink, shelter. And have we thanked him for preserving us, for being gracious to us in that way? Yes, he did it for the nation, but he also does it for us Notice verse 9 as well. It says, and does not allow our feet to slip. So preservation as well as, and there's a connection here certainly, but protection. The psalmist said, 121, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains from where uh, where shall my help come. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. God protects us from falling. How many times has God protected you from harm, whether you knew about it or you didn't? It'd be hard for us to know what things, although sometimes God allows us to learn afterwards the harm or danger we were in. We never knew it at the time, but God protected us. How many times were there dangers unseen? And God, in his mercy and providence, sent those angels who were ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for those who are heirs of salvation and his angels delivered us? How many times could we have stumbled and fallen? In some cases, wanting to do something in sinful desire, and yet God kept us even from that. He does not allow our feet to slip. And for the nation of Israel, God preserved them, he protected them, but he also tried them. And I just want to make the connection here because in verse 8 it says, bless our God. And this is one of the reasons that God is to be blessed, because he tries his people. 
Do you bless God for the trial? Are you thankful for the refining? That's the image, I believe, in the wording here. The word tried is the testing of metals, and then refining, of course, as I mentioned, silver is a process that is very severe, very hot to produce the kind of heat that purifies metals. And as metal is purified, it's refined and then refined and refined. There's a statement about the Word of God that it is as silver refined seven times. In other words, pure, absolutely pure. That refining process is something that God does with His people. He tests them. He tests their faith. He works in their lives to bring them to greater holiness, which is devotion to God in every way. And how did he do that? Well, we're, we see the explanation in the next couple of verses of how he did that with the nation. You brought us into the net. He brought us into a situation, Israel could say, that was inescapable. He had promised that they would be in a place where they would be enslaved. He told Abraham that long before they ever went into Egypt. So this was an inescapable refining. It was a test that God, and notice again God's sovereignty in this. It's verse 10. You have tried us. You have refined us. Verse 11. You brought us. You laid an oppressive burden. You made men ride over our heads. This is God. When you go through a trial, you can look at those human elements to the trial. You can look at the other elements to the trial, the circumstances, the things that happen. But ultimately, you have to look up and say that God is in charge. God has allowed this. In fact, God is using this to refine us. In this case, bringing someone into a net, a net is inescapable. If God brings you into the net, it was also heavy. Notice it says, you laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. This is pressing them down. And those parts of our body, you would say, would have the most strength. God stressed those. He put pressure on those, and he's pressing down so that this trial really is something to bring about change. Notice verse 12. You made men ride over our heads. I think the image that is suggested there, certainly it's oppression. Certainly there's pain. One person described it in terms of a military victory where the chariots and the horses are trampling upon the enemy. You made men ride over our heads in that way. Isaiah 51, verse 23, God speaking to his people, I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. You have even made your back like ground and like the street for those who walk over it. And I'm sure there are some people who like that when someone walks on their back and it kind of helps their back, but I don't think that's what we're talking about here. This is not a massage. And this is an extended and difficult trial. Notice the rest of the verse. There we went through fire and through water. Now, if this is an allusion to Egypt, 
and then eventually the circumstance of the exodus, Egypt is referred to as a furnace in Scripture. Deuteronomy, and then Solomon repeats it in his prayer for the dedication of the temple. He says, the Lord, Moses says in Deuteronomy, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. So that iron furnace is a reference to that testing, to the trial, to the refining. And the water then would be a reference to their coming out, but going through, of course, the Red Sea, God delivering them through that. And they went through water again, the waters of the Jordan. God brought them through that as well. And through all of that testing, even the testing in the wilderness, it was only then, after all of that, that he brought them to a place of abundance. It's kind of like life, isn't it? In other words, life is filled with trials. Trials of our faith. Circumstances that test us, test our obedience, test our devotion to the Lord. And of course, sometimes those trials ease up, but then more come. Life is not just an easy ride on an ocean liner where everything's all fine. One writer said, let us not hope to cross the sea of life without storms. You might be going through a storm right now. A test of your faith. And if you are, what does James say? Count it all joy. God has a purpose. He is bringing about change in you. He is bringing about endurance. He is, Romans 5, working glory in your life. Glory, which is the likeness to Jesus Christ. God is perfecting and changing you. He does that through trials. So James gives instruction to pray for wisdom. If anyone lacks wisdom, the context there is trials, let him ask of God. As you ask of God, ask in faith. Trust that God will provide wisdom as you navigate that storm. And as you pray and you find yourself in that storm, you find yourself in that trial, recognize that God does have a purpose. He is making you more like Christ. This is actually an exaltation of the brother, James says, who is of a low degree in that the person going through the trial realizes that God is doing something. God is doing something in my life, which means that God loves me. I'm God's child. That's a blessing to know. We don't like the trial. We don't like the process. But remember, God does this for his own people. And blessed is the one who endures temptation blessed. You're blessed if you endure that temptation. When you are tried, James says, you will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And that's one of the things that you're demonstrating as you endure through that trial, that you love the Lord. 
that you're going to hold fast to the Lord. Whatever comes in your life, whatever storm it might be, as God refines me, as he changes me, I'm going to hold fast to the Lord. And when we find that we're holding fast to the Lord, even that's grace. Because God is holding fast to us. And he does hold us fast. And there will be a place of abundance. That abundance may not come in this life. Likely it won't. Again, there are times when the trials ease up. There was the latter end of Job's life that we can see. But that trial of our faith that God is using in our lives, what is he doing? He's changing us to be like Christ. And that trial, that affliction is working in us an exceeding eternal weight of glory. There's something that awaits us. That's the abundance. I'm not talking about wealth. I'm talking about glory in the presence of God and his reward in eternity, certainly by his grace. That reference in the end of verse 12, yet you brought us out into a place of abundance, is a keeping of his promise. God had promised to Abraham the land. He told Abraham he would bring them out, and in keeping with that promise, he called Moses. And as he called Moses, and Moses went in with God's help and Aaron's help to deliver the people, that was all a part of God fulfilling his promise. And when they finally came to the promised land and failed the first time, but then they did come in, God was just giving them what he had promised them all along. And what was that? It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a land with houses that had already been built. It was a land with walled cities and all this provision for them. And they had been slaves. And they'd lived in the wilderness. And what they found in the end is that God, yes, he keeps his promises. And he kept his promises to them that ought to encourage us that he's going to keep his promises to you and to me. So God deserves blessing for his preservation, his protection, for his refining, for his goodness in keeping his promises. And I would suggest in verses 13 through 15, his faithfulness. Verse 13, the voice changes to a singular individual. If this was written by a king, there's some who would suggest that the king is now speaking. It's a solitary singer who is singing this. You can imagine this being perhaps a solo in uh, contrast with what has come before. Now you have one person singing. Verse 13, I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay my vows, which my lips uttered and my mouth was spoke when I was in distress. I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts with a smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats, Selah. Why do I say this reference is God's faithfulness? Well, the circumstance that the psalmist is in, based upon his own description, is he's in distress, verse 14, which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. What did he speak? He spoke a vow. A vow was a promise to God. That promise to God was, if you deliver me, if you help me out of this distress, then I will praise you, I will offer a sacrifice, and I will pay my vow. 
And so, verse 13, I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay my vows. Why? Because God has been faithful. He will be faithful. And you notice the number of animals there in verse 15. The burnt offerings of fat beasts with the smoke of rams. I will make an offering of bulls with male goats. Even if you just have two of each, that's a sizable offering. It suggests that God has been faithful, that God is worthy of my devotion because he's been faithful to me. And great faithfulness on the part of God to me ought to result in great thankfulness. It ought to result in great devotion to the Lord. It ought to result in great sacrifice. And if you just take that a step further and think of what God has done for you, through Christ. He is worthy of our total devotion. That's what a burnt offering was. It was a signal that the offerer was wholly devoted to the Lord. God gave his son to die on the cross for my sins, to save me, to do something for me that I could never do. And it's the very least that I can do to give my entire life back to him with all of my energy, with all my devotion. It's one thing when God answers a prayer and shows his great faithfulness, and he does do that. But beyond that, because of what God has already done, does he have your devotion? Does he have your full heart? Is there something in your heart that the world has? I remember, and I think I've quoted this before, a preacher that I heard over a couple decades ago, he said, if the world has got a piece of your heart, you better run to Jesus because it will not be worth it. No, give your heart to Christ. Give your full devotion to Christ. Not only because he is good and he helps us out of those times of distress, but because, of course, of what Christ has done for us. This invitation to bless God, light of these truths about God, his faithfulness, among other things, is followed then in the end by, again, another universal invitation. You see it in verse 1, you see it in verse 5, you see it in verse 8, and now come and hear all who fear God. I will tell you what he has done for my soul. This personal testimony of answered prayer. Thank you, by the way, for that tonight. It's a good encouragement to us that God does answer prayer. What does God do when he answers prayer? He shows himself to be God, shows himself to be God who is sovereign over all things, even a doctor in his investigation, whatever he does, God is sovereign in that. But it shows us his loving kindness. Shows us that he loves us when he answers our prayers. Now, if he says no, that's also an answer. God has a different will than whatever you asked for and he said no to. But when he does do for you what you have prayed for and he gives you that answer, then this demonstrates, as verse 20 says, his loving kindness. So the invitation is to come and hear. All who fear God. Now, I just back up. This is 
The other ones are universal. This is for those, specifically those who fear God. But we're still talking about not just the Jews, but the nations here. And the testimony is what he has done for me, for just me. This is not what he's done for the nation. That's back in verse 6, and that's also back in verses 9 down through verse 12. But this is for a single individual. As different writers have tried to place this psalm in history, some have suggested that this is Hezekiah who is writing the psalm. That it was Hezekiah's, either his sickness when God answered him and healed him of his sickness, which God had said he was going to die, and then he sustained his life for more years. We're not told the circumstances here, but that's one suggestion as to when this could have happened. But the idea is this is an individual who is praying. And this individual, as he prays, he's praying earnestly. Look at verse 17. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. Now, you could either look at verse 17 as the entire prayer, which combined praise along with petition. Or you could also look at it as God answering his cry and the result being his praise. Okay? And God is worthy of praise both in the petition part of the prayer. In other words, as we pray, we make petitions of God. We do so with thanksgiving. Philippians 4, verse 6, when we make our requests known to God, we don't ab- absent praise from that. No praise is a part of that. It's because of who God is and his greatness that that in and of itself gives us confidence and encouragement as we pray. And we're not buttering God up. We're just saying the truth about God as we pray. The other way to look at it is just that God answered the prayer. And verse 17 is a description of the whole thing. It's, I cried... And the reason he's extolled is because he answered. And that idea of extolling God is the great praise. It's not just a word of praise. It's effusive. It's just constant great praise to the Lord. But following that description of his earnest prayer, his personal testimony of his cry out to the Lord combined with praise, There's also a caution, a caution when we come to God, a caution when we pray to God. It's on the sign out front, and it ought to be marked in your heart and mine. I say marked, there ought to be a There ought to be a check in our spirit when we pray. Am I right with God? Am I regarding any sin in my heart? Is my heart pure? This is either a statement of a principle, and as it's translated, it seems like a statement of a principle, Or, it's a statement of his own practice. But even if it is his own practice, it becomes principial. In other words, there's something here for us to be reminded of. This isn't just for the psalmist. 
What I mean by, is this a statement of a principle? Well, the way that he puts it, if I regard iniquity or wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That's a principle. It's a statement. Truth. That if I hold iniquity in my heart that I'm not confessing, I'm not dealing with, and God is not going to listen to my prayer in the sense that he's going to answer. If it's the statement of his own practice and something he has already done in light of what he's already prayed in verse 17, it can be translated this way. Some of you might have notes connected with this verse that suggest that this is a past tense. If I had regarded wickedness in my heart, the Lord would not have heard. Either way, again, it's principial. It's a principle that ought to be, again, marked in our heart that when we go to prayer, there ought to be a willingness to just lay out our life before the Lord and confess and deal with our sins. Otherwise, we're really hypocritical, aren't we? Because this is holy, holy, holy God. And he demands that his people be holy. This personal practice on the part of the psalmist ought to be your practice and mine. It is consistent with other scriptures, such as Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. In other words, there's nothing limiting God from answering prayer. God can answer prayer. He does answer prayer. But why would he not answer prayer? Well, the psalmist tells us, but Isaiah tells us as well, your iniquities have made a separation between your, you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. In other words, the sin that continued to be regarded in the heart of the petitioner that was not dealt with, confessed, repented of, meant that God would not hear, listen to his prayers. We're talking about a stubborn, willful resistance to dealing with sin when coming to God in prayer. Now, we come to God because we have sinful hearts. But as we know about that sin, as God discovers that to us, it's time to confess. It's time to repent. It's time to get real. Because God knows. And God's word is spoken. And that sin that I may be holding fast to, if I'm holding on to that and resisting, I'm not turning from that sin, but I make a petition to God, but God's word has spoken to that sin, I think it is in that sense that the person who, t- who turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer will be an abomination. In other words, you're not listening to God. Why should he listen to you? Now, God is gracious and God is merciful and he knows when we're confused and he knows when we don't know if we have sin, we don't yet see it. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about known sin. 
Matthew Henry put it this way, those that continue in love and in league with sin have no interest either in the promise or in the mediator and therefore cannot expect a speed in prayer. Another person put it this way, if you cling to sin, you cannot cling to God. So when my daughters, whether it's a different time of the day or the end of the day, when they come to me or I come to them and we pray together, and I pray for God's blessing on their life. If I'm not right with God, if I'm holding fast to some sin in my heart, those prayers which I so want answered could be empty and not even rise to the ceiling of my bedroom or theirs. I can't pray for a meal and expect God to bless it if I'm not dealing with my sin. There's a warning here. And the warning is that if we don't deal with our sins, our prayers will not be answered. What is... Peter say in 1 Peter 3, live with your wife in an understanding way. Why? So that your prayers will not be hindered. There's the possibility that because of my life and the way that I'm living, that God is not hearing my prayers. Not that he can't hear them, but that he's not answering my prayers. Now, the psalmist here is encouraged because... He has dealt with his heart. But he's not going to give praise to himself. Look at verse 19. It says, but certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. So what does he do here? He doesn't pat himself on the back, which you might expect him to do. I mean, my prayer got answered. It must be okay. My heart must be pure. But instead of patting himself on the back, he gives praise to the Lord. As he says in verse 20, blessed be God. He's confident that God has heard, but he gives credit to God, not himself. He blesses God for not turning away that prayer. He blesses God for demonstrating his loving kindness and not turning away that steadfast love. Isn't it a wonderful thing when God answers our prayers? It's a comfort to know. Isn't it an encouragement when we can say, God heard my prayer, he answered me. He paid attention to me, little me. Look at the scope of this world, almost 8 billion people, and yet he paid attention to me and my words. God heard my prayer. It's not because of me, it's because of his steadfast love, verse 20, which is an evidence of his grace. In grace, God has made us his people. He's made us his own. He calls us his children. In grace, he has invited us to pray. He is called the God, Psalm 65, who hears prayer. In grace, as we look at the fuller teaching of Scripture, he has provided a mediator. And so I can come in Jesus' name and pray to 
God the Father who sits on the throne of the universe and know that in grace he has loved me, in grace he's made me his child, he's invited me to pray, he's given me a mediator, I can pray in Jesus' name and he will answer and that will be a demonstration of his love and his grace. What a great God. How worthy of praise and blessing of all the peoples of the whole world, especially those who fear God, who have seen his answering prayer, who have seen his good grace. May the Lord help us to praise him as he is worthy of.